I want to speak about something that I spoke about in this past week's Parsha podcast. I'm sure y'all are all committed listeners, but something came up in the podcast that was so powerful, so insightful, and an idea that can really create a paradigm shift, or maybe even several paradigm shifts in our thinking. And over Shabbos, I thought about it more, and I want to further clarify it, further elaborate and expand upon it, because I think it's so critical and so foundational. In last week's Parsha, Parsha's Noach, we have the episode of the Tower of Babel. And it's a very mysterious section in the Torah. It's only a couple of verses in chapter 11 of Genesis. It's not given the kind of treatment that, you know, the episode of the flood is given. We have, we have two generations, the generation of the flood, and that's, that's treated extensively. The flood and the preparations and the ark and the whole year in the ark. And then you have this Tower of Babel episode, and it's very mysterious and very cryptic. And even if you open up the commentaries, you don't find a lot of direction. And it's it's a secret, as we shall see. It starts off, the, the very first verse, is that the entire land was one language, udvarim achadim, and one strain of, of thinking, one, one, one path of thinking. They were united. And they traveled from the east, and they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they dwelled there. Again, these things are obviously not just incidental to the story. The Torah doesn't tell us anything incidental. There's something about what they're doing. They're traveling. They're moving to this valley, and then they have a plan. They want to make bricks, and they want to make mortar, and they want to build a city and a tower whose head is in the heavens. And we will make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, perhaps we'll be scattered across the face of the earth. That's how this episode begins. And then there's the intervention of God where he comes and scrambles and garbles their language and scatters them across the world, thereby disrupting their plans. But what exactly they wanted to do, it's very unclear. And the Midrash tells us that if it doesn't make sense to us, that is by design. Because the Torah did not want to tell us the nature of their sin. The Torah wanted it to remain obfuscated and unclear. And therefore the Torah didn't reveal to us what their plan was. So if it doesn't really make any sense to you, you just read it. It's talking about, you know, traveling to some valley and, and bricks and mortar and a, and a city and a tower and making them for themselves a name that the tower whose head is supposed to reach the heavens. If it doesn't make any sense to us, that's by design because the Torah did not want to reveal to us what they actually wanted to do. Now the Talmud does say that there were different factions, even though they were united, one language, one people, one unified approach, there were different cohorts amongst this generation. Some, some wanted to ascend to heaven and to dwell there. Okay. And some wanted to ascend to heaven and worship idolatry. And some wanted to ascend to heaven and to wage war against God. Now, of course, all of this 
does not really clarify to us what we need to know. Because what does it even mean to ascend to heaven? What does it mean to dwell in heaven? What does it mean to ascend to heaven and do idolatry? What's wrong with doing idolatry here? We know there's a lot wrong with doing idolatry here. But what did they want to, to specifically do idolatry there? And to ascend to heaven and to wage war against God. The whole thing sounds so bizarre and peculiar. What we do know, and Rashi tells us this, which is more of a generalized understanding of what their plan was. They wanted to do some degree of rebellion against God. There was something in their plan that amounted to idolatry. God placed man here on earth, and they wanted to go somewhere else. They wanted to ascend there. All three factions wanted to go to ascend to heaven, whatever that even means. And what they were to do there... That's where the factions disagreed. But this was all an effort to violate the plan of God. There was some sort of rebellion, some sort of organized mutiny against God. And what exactly they wanted to do, it's not clear, but it was something dastardly for sure, to override God, to overpower him, to disable, so to speak, his dominion in some fashion. But again, it's a bit unclear. Now, the Kabbalists, they give us a bit more context to their plan. Of course, we know, we believe, we're trained, that not only did God create the world, but he continually creates the world. He didn't just create the world and go move on to bigger and better things. He runs the world. He governs it. He continuously sustains and oversees it. Every second, God is recreating the world. We say that in our prayers every single morning. Ubituvo in his goodness, mechadesh bechol yom yom tamid. God is renewing every day. Tamid, always. Ma'asebreshis, the act of Genesis. So God's not removed from the world. He's involved. He's renewing it every second, every moment of every day. But we're also told that there is an infrastructure that God created to, so to speak, govern the world. So, for example, the Midrash tells us that every blade of grass has an angel that is assigned to it. And that angel hits the blade of grass and commands it to grow, which is a way of saying that nothing happens on its own. Even the grass growing, it's not some sort of independent process of nature, that there's just these rules of nature that are in place. Even that is, so to speak, manually done. It's manually propelled to grow by an angel. Now, of course, that angel is a, is a emissary. It's a, it's a messenger of God. But that angel is part of this infrastructure that God created to, so to speak, intermediate between him and the world. Not to say that the angel has any autonomy, but the angel is a functionary of God. Similarly, you recall in Genesis, Jacob has a nocturnal battle with a man. 
and they're struggling the whole night. And the man sees that he cannot overcome Jacob. And he hits him at his hip and he dislodges his, his hip. And uh, Jacob doesn't release him and he forces him to give him a blessing. You recall that episode, Parshas Vayishlach. Rashi tells us, based upon the sources, this was no ordinary man. This was the angel of Esav. What this means is that every nation has an overriding, so to speak, angel through which the divine vitality to said nation flows. Every land has an angel through which the divine vitality for that land flows. The only nation that does not have an angel intermediating, so to speak, between that nation and God, the only land that does not have an angel that does the same is the nation of Israel and the land of Israel. Which is why our swings are much sharper than other nations. Because the the highs are much higher and the lows are much lower because there isn't, so to speak, a moderating force that's attenuating, that's mitigating, that's limiting, so to speak, the full force of the divine vitality. Again, we're talking in Kabbalistic lingo, but the nation of Israel doesn't have an angel that oversees it. The land of Israel, the eyes of God, so to speak, the verse tells us, they are governing the land from beginning of the year to the end of the year. Meaning that the land of Israel does not have that same force, that same angel that oversees it and that uh, concatenates, so to speak, the divine vitality to that particular land. Which is why the Talmud says, if you live outside the land of Israel, it's like you don't have a God. Meaning that there's an angel through which, so to speak, your vitality flows through. We have the idea of, of Sephiros, and I don't even know what this means, but in the Kabbalistic architecture, there's this idea of, of ten Sephiros of God, which are some sort of entities. It's not God. God has no parts or no kind of break up God into any smaller pieces, of course. But these are entities through which the divine concatenations flow. As an example, we have the idea of stars, you know, stargazers. We see a lot about this in the Torah. This notion that some degree of what happens over here is overseen and, and governed through some celestial forces. The idea of a mazel. A mazel is some sort of spiritual entity that has some say in determining, so to speak, what happens to a given people, a given thing, a given land. But of course, all this is not independent of God, it's all the will of God. That's how he designed it, that's how he engineered it, and this is what the Kabbalists tell us. The Tower of Babel people wanted to override. They didn't want to be subject to this whole system. They wanted to get freedom from these heavenly overseers. They wanted to get, so to speak, a master key of existence. And that was their plan to ascend, so to speak, to heaven above the governing infrastructure that they might have placed in the world. And what they wanted to do, that, that was the different factions, how exactly they were going to use this power that they were going to acquire. 
But everyone agrees they wanted to ascend to heaven, so to speak, above the stars, above the angels, above all these celestial forces. That was the plan. Now, of course, to us, the plan seems very bizarre. What kind of plan is this? Did they seriously consider that they will succeed? Can you really override the divine plan? Can you really remove yourself from the system that the Almighty installed in the world? Can you really divest yourself, remove yourself, shake yourself free of this governing architecture? The whole subject is very mysterious. Now, to compound the matter, if you read the verses very carefully, it seems that they would have succeeded. They would have pulled this off. There was a divine intervention to stop them. What would have happened if there wasn't a divine intervention? If God allowed them to proceed without any disruption? They would have pulled it off. They might ask to descend, so to speak, and to garble their language and to scatter them because otherwise they would have pulled it off. As one people, with one language, with one united purpose, they would have done it. And God says, this is verse 6, they're one nation, one language for all of them. And that is how they are embarking upon this very ambitious plan. And now nothing will stop them. Therefore, let us disrupt their plan. Let us disrupt what they have going for them, being one nation, one language, one united purpose. And that's the only way to stop them. So long as they were one nation, united, one language, one people, nothing would stop them. They were working together, they were cooperating, and they were dedicated to a single cause. Unless God intervened, they would have pulled it off. And even if their mission is so evil, it's a rebellion against God. It's a mission to ascend to heaven and to override, so to speak, the system that God placed in the world. Even a mission as evil would have succeeded because they were so united. So the first thing we discover from this is that there's some sort of super power that is accorded to a group of people acting in unison. If there is a united front towards any cause, even if it's a cause that seems to be very problematic, it's an evil cause, something which amounts to idolatry, a plan to dwell in the heavens against where God placed people, to do idolatry in the heavens. Idolatry here is bad enough. To go up to the heavens and do idolatry, to wage war against God. Whichever faction we're dealing with, there's something very wrong with the plan of these people. Yet, they would have done it. They would have pulled it off. 
Why? Because they were united. And when you are united, there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can impede a united effort. They would have been invincible. And the only way that God stops them is by disabling their unity, by garbling their language, and by scattering them so they cannot work together. They have this outrageous plan, this crazy plan, and they would have pulled it off because they were a united front, one nation, one language, one mission, one unified desire. That's what we know about the Tower of Babel. But how do we understand it? How do we understand their plan? And how do we understand the fact because they were united, absent the divine intervention, disabling said unity, they would have succeeded. And it hit me that we have an exact parallel. We see another effort by a different group of people that actually pulled it off. There was another group of people that were also united as one and also ascended to heaven and also were able to override the divine plan. And that, of course, is the Sinai revelation. Moshe, the representative of the Jewish people, he ascends to heaven and he comes back with the Torah. What is the Torah? The Torah is the master key to the world. We know that they might have used the Torah to create the world. And thus, if you have the Torah, you have the ability, you're, so to speak, higher in the hierarchy, you are above the world, and thus you are not subject to it. The world is subservient to the Torah. The Torah even preceded the world, the Talmud tells us, by 974 generations. So the Torah comes before the world, and the Torah is what God uses, so to speak, to create the world. And thus the entire world is subject to the Torah, and thus bearers of the Torah are not subject to the world and to the rules that were imposed in the world. Moreover, we are told that the entire world endures, is perpetuated solely in the merit of Torah. In the week of Genesis, we have day one, and then the second day, and then the third day, and then the fourth day, and then the fifth day. And then when we have the sixth day, it's a little bit different. It doesn't say it was evening, it was morning, day six. It says it was evening and it was morning, the day six, Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. And Tom explains to us that all of Genesis is all hinging 
upon the sixth day. Namely, the sixth, not the sixth day of the week, but the sixth day of the month of Sivan, the day of the Sinai revelation when the nation got Torah, the whole world is hinging upon that because the whole world hinges upon Torah. You recall how many generations before the world was created, the Torah was created. The Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos, page 88b, it was 974 generations. It's a very precise number. Why specifically 974? What does that tell us? Why 974? Why that number in particular? Here's the answer. There are 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. So that's 20. Abraham's son is Isaac, whose son is Jacob, whose son is Levi, whose son is Kehas, whose son is Amram, whose son is Moshe. Moshe is exactly 26 generations from from Adam. And thus, the sign of revelation is exactly a thousand generations from the inception of Torah. The verse tells us that God preserves the covenant and the kindness for those who he loves and those who observe his mitzvot for a thousand generations. God does kindness and upholds the covenant for a thousand generations. What this means is that the entire existence subsists on Torah. But for a thousand generations, there's no one studying Torah. So how does the world endure? It endures because the Almighty does kindness for a thousand generations. After that, we're on our own, so to speak. After this thousand generations, the next generation, the world endures not because the Almighty, so to speak, in His kindness allows the world to endure even though it's not worthy, it's not meritorious. It endures because of Torah study. You recall that prayer that we say every morning. God in His goodness perpetuates and renews the world every day, all day. God does Genesis again and again and again every second. Ubituvo, in his goodness, he renews the world every day, all day. He renews Genesis all day, every day. The word bituvo, in his goodness, ain't tov el Torah. There are many, many, many times you find the word tov is always a hint to Torah. God says, I gave you a good acquisition. That is Torah. How does God perpetuate the world in his goodness? With his Torah. Torah is the key to Genesis. 
God renews Genesis every day. How? With his goodness, namely with his Torah that we are studying. When we are studying Torah every morning, we are perpetuating Genesis. Torah is the key to do Genesis, both the initial Genesis, God looked in the Torah and created the world, and the ongoing Genesis every second of every day. If there was a moment where there was no one in the entire world studying Torah, the whole world would cease to exist. Because the world does not continually exist, it only subsists upon the goodness, so to speak, of God. He did kindness for a thousand generations. Thenceforth, it's up to us to perpetuate the world. And we do that with the Torah, which is the master key of Genesis. Moshe goes up to heaven. And he gets a system that's higher than nature. That's the system that creates nature. What the people of the Tower of Babel wanted, Moshe did. An amazing insight. Now, we'll tell you just an example of this or a picture of this. The Talmud tells us a remarkable story. This is in the book of Hulan on page 7a, towards the bottom. One of the sages of the Talmud, of the Mishnah, really, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, he was doing a mitzvah. He was trying to redeem captives. And he's traveling to where he needs to go. And he's confronted by a river. His path is obstructed. So he tells the river, please clear the way so I can continue doing my mitzvah. And the river says, no, the Almighty, so to speak, instructed me to flow. And therefore I'm not going to split because I'm following the will of God. How do you respond to that? So Rebbechaz ben says, if you don't split, I will decree that you'll never flow again. Do you really want to mess with me? And the river parted. And he walked through. And after he walked through, the, the river proceeded to flow. But there was someone else who was with him who was stuck on the other side. And the rabbi said to the river, let him go through as well. And the river split for that person as well. And then there was another person who wasn't even a Jewish person. He was an Arab in the words of the Talmud. Let him go as well. He was an attendant. And the river split for him as well. The great rabbi is dictating to the river, and the river is abiding by his dictates. Now, we know we have a very dramatic story of a sea splitting. It's one of the biggest stories in the whole Torah. We revisit it every day. We talk about the great miracles, the splitting of the sea, and the great song that the nation erupted 
in spontaneous song afterwards. And we say it every day, we revisit every day, and of course, on Pesach, we talk all about it. We make a big deal out of the splitting of the sea. We have a sage, 1,400 years later, who's doing it routinely. For me, for this other guy, for this third person. What is so special about Moshe splitting the sea? And it's this incredible miracle that we constantly revisit. When even a sage, 1,400 years later, so this is many, many generations, eras later, even he's able to do it, what's the big deal that Moshe was able to do it? And the Arachayim says there's a very big difference. The splitting of the sea happened seven days after the Exodus, but before the Sinai revelation. Before the Sinai revelation, you are governed by nature. You have the Almighty, and he institutes the rules of nature. Of course, they're not independent, but they are rules that everyone is subject to. To override nature when you are still subject to it, that is a miracle. But it's only a miracle before the sign of revelation. After the sign of revelation, when we became bearers of the Torah, which is the master key of creation, both the initial creation, the initial Genesis, and the continual ongoing Genesis, we determine the, or the bearers of the Torah, determine the rules of nature. And if they want to temporarily suspend one of the rules, they have the keys and the tools to do it. So splitting the sea after the sign of revelation, that ain't no miracle. Anyone who's a master of Torah, has acquired a level up, so to speak, is not subject to the rules of nature and can dictate to nature, can manipulate nature no problem, It's easy. It's in their hands. They are above it. And they can recreate the world, so to speak, every second with their Torah. They can recreate the world and say, no, the the rules for this moment are that the river does not flow. And then we can recreate the world again with a new system where the river actually flows. That is what the nation acquired at Sinai. Just like Abraham, in this week's parish, actually, 15.5, Abraham was taken above the stars. Abraham is told that the destiny of Abraham and his descendants is that they are no longer subject to the stars. He's above them, and he can dictate to them, and they cannot dictate to him. Moshe is a representative of the Jewish people ascends to heaven, and acquires the means to override and overpower the heavenly system. This is exactly what the people of the Tower of Babel wanted. But unlike Moshe, unlike the nation, they didn't want it for good purposes to submit themselves to God. They wanted either to dwell there, to do idolatry there, to wage war against God. But the exact system that Moshe acquired for our people, that's what they wanted, to ascend to heaven and to override the heavenly plan. Moshe succeeded where they failed, 
but they would have succeeded. If not for God disabling their unity, because they were united, one people, one language, one unified purpose, nothing would stop them. The only way to stop them is to disable this unity, to garble the language, and to disperse them. So we see the plan, we see the means of acquisition, and we see someone else who was able to pull off that same heist, so to speak, that same quest, so to speak. Now to round it out, the final point here is that the means that Moshe and the Jewish people used It's exactly the same means that the Tower of Babel people used. They had a plan, they had a desire, and they had the way to do it because they were unified. Moshe, we see, pulled it off, representing the nation. How did they do it? The verse tells us, chapter 19, verse 2 of Exodus, the nation encamped in the wilderness, Vayichan Sham Yisrael Neged Hahar. The nation encamped opposite the mountain. The verse has the word encamped twice, but one is Vayachanu, and they plural encamped. And then one of them Vayichan, and they singular encamped. So there's a switch. There's a, a plural wor- word of they, and then there's a singular. It was like, and he encamped. So Rashi says, wait a minute. He? We're talking about a nation of millions of people. 600,000 adult males. How can you say he encamped? They encamped is more appropriate. So Rashi tells us that the state of the nation at that time was as if there were one person. They were so unified, like one man with one heart, with one purpose. That was the state of the people in the run-up to the sign of Revelation. And that's how Moshe ascended to heaven, in the exact same manner that the people of the Tower of Babel wanted to do. It's the same objective, and it's the same means. The only difference is to what end. Moshe and the Jewish people to a very righteous end, and that's why they were not disrupted, and they were enabled to do what they wanted to pull off. The Tower of Babel Groups wanted to use us for nefarious purposes, and the Almighty intervened, disabled and disrupted their unity, and quashed their plans. To me, this was a very big development for a few reasons. First of all, it shows us a deeper understanding of what the people of the Tower of Babel wanted. Number one, and the means that they were going to deploy to achieve what they wanted. But also, you know, they failed, but we pulled it off with the same means, the same goal for a righteous end. But it also reveals to us the power of, of Torah. Torah is the tool that oversees creation. It's a level up. It's a level higher. The world is continuously every moment, being recreated. Genesis happens 
continuously through the Torah. It's a system that's higher than nature. And this also explained to me a very problematic comment in Rashi that I've seen many times and never really made sense to me. From the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 30, the verse is talking about the repentance of the nation and the circumcision of the heart. And then it says, This mitzvah that I am commanding you today. Rashi says it's a reference to Torah study. It's not beyond you. It's not distant from you. It's not in the heavens. That you could say, well, who's going to ascend to heaven to go get it for us, to teach it to us? And it's not on the other side of the sea that you may say, who will cross over the sea to take it for us, to teach it to us so we can do it? The matter is very close, exceedingly close to you. In your mouth, in your heart, that is part of Moshe's narrative, Parshas Nitzavim, at the end of the Torah, where he's telling the nation that this mitzvah, i.e. the mitzvah of Torah, it's not so hard, it's not so distant, it's not beyond you, it's not in the heavens, it's not across the sea, it's close, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. Now in the verse, verse 12 of chapter 30, when the verse says, Lo it's not in the heavens, Rashi says something very surprising, very peculiar. He says, Ilu if in fact it would have been in the heaven, you would have to ascend to the heaven to study it. It's not in the heaven. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. But if it was in the heaven, Rashi tells us, you would be required to ascend to heaven and to go study it. And of course, that always puzzled me. You know, what is Rashi even saying? Moshe is telling the Jewish people, it's not in the heavens, but if it would be, you'd have to go get it. How is this in, in the counterfactual world that it was in the heavens, then we'd be required to do it. How is that a realistic expectation? Now we know the answer. We see two examples of people that pulled it off. The people of the Tower of Babel would have done it. They had the conditions were all in place for them to pull it off. And the Jewish people at Sinai did it. It's doable. The means to do it are a unified front. But once you have that, Everyone's united like one man with one heart, with one purpose, one language, one people. It's no problem to ascend to heaven. Now, thankfully, we don't have to do that. It's in our mouth, it's in our hearts to do it. But we have the formula, we have the roadmap. We do know how to pull this off. Now, I think that this is actually how we achieve the next level of revelation. 
creation, Genesis happened, it's continually happening. That's the first revelation. The Sinai revelation, the second revelation happened. And of course, we are constantly revisiting it. We are awaiting a third revelation, which, which, is, what, which is what we call Messiah. Genesis is continually happening because we have Torah. We are like above the heavens to a certain extent, and we are manipulating Genesis every second, or revisiting, renewing Genesis every second. Moshe sent it to heaven thanks to the unparalleled unity of the nation. How do we bring about Messiah? So I remembered this morning. We have a prayer that we say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the, the centerpiece of the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur prayers, are all about hoping, praying, yearning for Messiah. And we ask God to place all your dread, your fear, your awe upon all your creations. And everyone should fear you. Everyone should bow before you. And then we have a part of the prayer. And everyone will make one bundle, which means literally one bundle, but it actually means one unified group to do your will, believe of Shalem, with wholeheartedness. We specifically highlight the fact that Messiah is associated with a complete unification of all disparate entities and beings to all try to do God's will wholeheartedly. It made sense to me, you know, the Talmud tells us, that the reason why the second temple was destroyed was because of disunity. There was hatred amongst the nation. There was factionalism. There were splinters. They were not unified. Well, if that is how the destruction happens, the way you rectify it, the way you fix it, the way you undo that is by unification. And we know that the third temple is associated with Messiah. So it makes sense that what is actually needed is unity in order to rectify and rebuild the grand world that we lost and we hope to restore. I heard something amazing from one of my teachers. He says, we don't even need to get the whole world to unify. If just us, in-house, not even the whole Jewish nation, if all the yeshiva students if all the people who make a major effort of their lives to study and immerse themselves in the Almighty's Torah, if all these people were uni- unified as one, Messiah would have been here already. This is an incredible potent force. It was used for bad in the times of the Tower of Babel. It was used for good by Sinai, and it will be used for good, please God, to bring about the next level of revelation. I want to take this a step further. 
Why, in fact, is it so powerful? Why is this idea of a unified front, if there's one people and it's like one person with one heart, with one purpose, with one unified objective, everyone working together, everyone contributing towards the same goal, one language, one pursuit. Why is a unified front such an invincible force? So maybe there are other answers to this question. But I think the essence of the answer is that the Almighty outsourced to us, so to speak, a say in governing the world. The notion of free will is the notion of the Almighty taking some of the authority and the oversight over the world and giving it to us. He wants to partner with us. And he wants us to help complete creation. There are many mitzvos that the sages tell us that if someone does this mitzvah, they become a partner with God in Genesis. God doesn't need our help, of course. But the way he, in his wisdom, designed the world is that he outsourced some of the oversight and some of, really, the responsibilities of Genesis to us. He created a world, but the last final fixing of it, he gave to us. He, of course, is the creator, but he gave us, so to speak, a seat at the table. So just for good and for bad, of course. You've heard of the concept of an evil eye, of of an ayin hara. That if someone has negative feelings towards another person, that can injure, that can harm said person. The way that works is that the Almighty takes into account what we want, what we feel, what we desire. Of course, God runs the world, but we have a say too. The Almighty considers our position. And if I'm giving negative karma, negative energy, and I want someone else to suffer and to experience pain and to undergo difficulties, I have an evil eye towards that person. The Almighty will take that into account. He will consider it. And that may actually affect that person. That's, of course, for bad. It can also be used for good. But we have a very important role to play, and we have a say both for good and for bad. If everyone's united, then that force is in its full power and it gets to determine it has a real say. A say that can even override the divine plan, the the default divine plan. If there are opposing voices, so if there's, you know, it's a 51-49, so to speak, breakdown, every other opposing voice is going to counter and limit the effect of the petition and therefore, it's not going to be as powerful. And therefore, our seat on the table is going to be split. It's going to be divided. 
and thus the impact of what we des- of what we want is going to be much more limited. The Almighty created a system of the world, and that system tolerates the capacity of us rising up and choosing a different governing infrastructure. We have so much power. But if there are voices that are drowning it out, if there are opposing voices, then that weakens the force and thus limits the capacity of what they can achieve. When everyone was one voice, when everyone was one language, when they were like one man with one heart, that's an unlimited power, and that, in fact, can bestow upon that effort unparalleled success, both for good and for bad. So this, to me, was a very transformative idea. I said it's a paradigm shift. It's multiple paradigm shifts. It's about how powerful we really are and what kind of say we really have in the world. And of course, it teaches us all about the power of Torah. But I think that this is something we need to really focus on. If we want to effectuate change in the world, to the degree that we are united, we are effective. We are powerful. And I think it makes sense for us to try to improve our unity in order to hopefully achieve the good things that we want. And at a very basic level, we see that there's a big emphasis here on language. We see that the description of the unity was that they were all speaking the same language. Everyone was listening to everyone else. On a basic level, you improve your interrelationship and interdependentness and unification with other people by hearing them out, by trying to understand their language, understanding their position, and truthfully considering their positions and their opinions. So maybe that's a good lesson for us to take home from this grand insight. Many times when we are speaking to people, we're speaking past them. I already know my position. And you're speaking, okay, let's get that over with so I can say my position. And that's when people are talking past each other. They may be speaking the same language, but they're not talking to each other. They're not communicating with each other. They're not trying to unify together, try to achieve a goal together. On a more direct level, I spoke about this already a few times, our people are in middle of a war. And we're trained. When there's a war, everyone must enlist. Everyone must join the effort. Everyone must conscript to the army. But our armies, our wars happen on two fronts. The very first war that our nation waged was against Amalek right after The Exodus, chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, the nation of Amalek attacked. And in this war, we see how Jews wage war. Joshua 
wages the physical battle with the soldiers against the enemy. Moshe goes up the mountain, Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side, and he wages the spiritual war against, so to speak, the spiritual forces of the enemy. The Talmud tells us that David had a partnership with his general, Yoav. Yoav would do battle on the battlefield. David would do battle, so to speak, in the halls of the academy. He would wage the spiritual war with the study of Torah. And each one of them depended upon the other. Yoav would not succeed in battle without David's study, and David could not study unless he had the military protection of Yoav. They worked together symbiotically, each one of them contributing in their way. We may not be able to go to Israel to enlist in that part of the war. But nothing stops us from being unified in this effort and contributing towards the war and the war efforts on the spiritual dimensions. And now we know the study of Torah. Why is it so powerful? Well, that is the force that causes the renewal of Genesis every moment, every second. Ubed Tuvo, in his goodness, with the Torah. For a thousand years, God did it on his own, so to speak. Now it's up to us. Thus, we can override nature, and we certainly can have a say in the outcomes of a war by us contributing on the spiritual front, the spiritual dimensions of said conflict. The yeshiva students in Israel, they do not conscript to the army. Some do, but most don't. And one of the arguments is that by studying Torah, they are actually doing more to protect the state than they would have if they had taken an M16 and worn the uniform and go join the physical battle. Moshe, his role in fighting Amalek was greater than Joshua's. They're both important. But David's role is greater than Yoav's. Moshe's role is greater than Joshua's. And the yeshiva student's role, the one who's studying Torah on behalf of the nation, that role is greater than the soldier, the, the physical soldier's role in defending the land. That's what the yeshiva students are taught And I think it's very legitimate. I think it's consistent with the Torah. We have a definition now of Torah. It's the master key of the world. And given that that's true, I think there's an imperative, not just on the yeshiva students in Israel who have the deferral from army army service, but all of us, even though we are far away, we can contribute as well spiritually towards this war effort. And we have to be united. If we are united, we will win. If we're not, then the success is going to be imperiled. I saw, I've been watching the last couple of days, a lot of Israeli television on online. They have it all, all for free. You can watch it all online. 
as you know, I speak a fluent Hebrew. And you want to get a sense of what's actually happening there. What's the psyche of the nation? You don't, you don't, you don't go to CNN or wherever else you would go. You don't go to the AP or Reuters to really understand what's happening in Israel. You go to what the Israelis are saying. So I saw an interview. So they're interviewing a lot of soldiers and police officers and civilians to kind of, you know, gauge the sentiment on the battlefront. And they're interviewing a commander for Mishmar Hagvul. Mishmar Hagvul is like the, call it the, the border protection. Very impressive young man. And he's speaking. He's like, he has like that bravado, but like that, you know, super competent Israeli kind of moxie to him. And the, the anchor in the studio is so taken by him that he's kind of having a very long interview with this person. And then he says to him, is there anything you want to say to the nation? I'm, I'm, I was loving this interview. This guy's really great. Do you have any message you want to share with the nation? And he said something. I couldn't believe what he said. He said, you can't even make it up. He said, we are a nation that lives on our sword. And he used the same words in the Torah that Isaac tells Esav. After Jacob comes and usurps the blessings. So Esav comes and he's very disappointed. This is Parshas Toldos, chapter 27, I think it is, of Genesis. Jacob comes and steals the blessings. And uh, Esav is delayed and he shows up and Isaac reveals the bitter news that your brother came and he tricked me, but I'm not taking back those blessings. He's going to be blessed. And Esav laments and he cries and he bewails. There's nothing you have left over for me. Nothing. And Isaac tells him, You should live on your sword. And this guy... So impressive, he says that this is what our nation stands for. So he's a very impressive young man, but very ignorant, because that's not what our nation stands upon. What did Isaac tell Jacob? He says, Hakol call Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Jacob, and the hands are the hands of Esav. And to Esav, he says, you live on your sword. Now, yes, that doesn't mean that we lay down our weapons. But that's not really what our nation stands for. Now, I will maybe, uh, just as a way of maybe finding some excuse for what he was saying, Jacob does say, Jacob does say at the end of Genesis, when he's talking about the the city that he acquired and that he wants to give to, to Joseph, he says, I acquired this with my sword and with my bow. And Rashi there says that his sword is Torah study and his bow is prayer. So maybe what this very impressive young man was saying, we live on our sword. He wasn't referring to the sword, even though he used the exact same words, but he wasn't referring to the sword of Esav. He's referring to the sword of Jacob, namely Torah study. So maybe, maybe that's what he meant. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. that. That's what he meant. But this is what our nation stands for. 
We have the Torah. We ascended above the heavens, thanks to our unity. And we have the Torah, which is the master key of the world. And that's how we wage war. Of course, it's important to also have Joshua and to have Yoav on the battlefield. But this is how we wage war. And our real sword, our real power, that's, so to speak, what Moshe did, what David did, and what we can do as well. And again, I want to stress this point. A lot of people are forfeiting a lot to go participate in this war. These reservists that you hear about, they all have jobs and families and relationships and children. And they're leaving that. They're giving all that up to go help defend the nation. I think it's very important. If you have the great privilege of being a yeshiva student, of being someone who is engaging on this spiritual dimension of the battle, you also have to give up something. Think about what Moshe did. He went up to the mountaintop and he lifted his hands up the entire day. Try doing that. You do it for a minute, your arms feel like lead. Try doing that for an hour. You have to have Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side. When it, when, when we're saying that the Torah is what determines that, that's the real sword. That, that's what determines the real success or that has a bigger say in determining the success of the nation. And we have to be united doing what we can, what we can contribute. That doesn't mean they sit around and drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and do a little studying. It means that you also take on a warlike level of determination and commitment to do your part. But I think that's another element of this importance of, of unity that we find in this Parsha in this episode of the Tower of Babel, they had a grand plan. And it seems to us, if you read it on face value, it seems to be so crazy and so ridiculous, absurd, outrageous. But again, they would have done it. They would have done it. And we see an example of us doing it. And we learn from that the power of unity, the power of a united front, and we understand why unity is so powerful. And we understand that now we have the Torah, we have the master, the master key of existence, and we recreate the world every second with our Torah study. And this gives us an imperative to be unified. That's what's going to bring the Messiah when everyone's united as one to do the will of God wholeheartedly, to try to in- increase, so to speak, our recognition of others, listen to them, hear them, hear their language, understand what they're trying to say. And certainly now we are in a time of war. Everyone has to contribute their part. Whichever sword you're going to take, be it the physical sword, be it the spiritual sword, you are part of this united front. And when we are united, when we are like one man, one purpose, one language, one people, with one effort, with one purpose, nothing will stop us. I thank you for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day, a fabulous week. I hope to hear your questions, your comments, and your feedback. And of course, my email address is... Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com.